are now into Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. Um, up until this point, I mean, we have seen Jonah. He has, you know, been called out to go to Nineveh to cry out against Nineveh. He ran away from that call that God gave him. He ended up on a boat going out to, toward Tarshish out in the Mediterranean. Uh, there God stirred up a storm. The sailors, when they figured out that it was Jonah, and, and, and the, their, their ultimate decision was they just threw Jonah overboard, and God calmed the seas, and Jonah was swallowed up by fish. And last week, we saw where Jonah, while he was in that fish, he just prayed. But it wasn't that he was just praying. He was praying through various psalms. He was praying through the scriptures that he knew and that he was familiar with and aware of that in many ways correlated directly with what he was going through. He was referencing back to some of those things. And then at the time, and the, at, at the end of chapter 2 there, he, he talks about his uh, praises of thanksgiving to God, and he's going to keep his vows. And that's when the fish kind of threw him up on the beach there on dry land. And now we see that Jonah is going to go to Nineveh. And I want us to see how the first three verses of chapter 3 correlate with the first three verses of chapter 1. They, they very much go hand in hand if you look at this. Let's just look at the first three verses of chapter 3. And if you'll recall back to chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city of three days' walk. Here we see where in both places God had called Nineveh out and said, I need you to get up, go to Nineveh, or called Jonah out and said, I need you to get up and go to Nineveh. The first verse says, the Lord, word of the Lord came, and both word of the Lord came to Jonah. The second verse says, get up and go to Nineveh. In the chapter one, it says, cry out against it. In, cha in, ch in chapter three, he says, proclaim what I'm going to tell you. Okay? And then... Instead of chapter 1, where he says in verse, in, in verse 3, he got up and left and went toward Tarshish, here he gets up and he starts going towards Nineveh. Now, we know that where he was more than likely on the coast of the Mediterranean there to get to Nineveh, it was not just a day or two walk to get there. It was probably closer to a month's walk to get to Nineveh. And so it's not like he just kind of showed up overnight on the shores of some place, some lake in Nineveh. He was walking a great distance. And it says there at the end of verse 3, it says that it was, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. That doesn't mean it was three days walk away. All right, man, what, what that means is, is, is one of three things. It either took three days to cross Nineveh, it either took three days to walk around Nineveh, or it took three days to kind of meander through Nineveh. Most theologians will kind of say they believe that it was either one of the, the number two or number three, that archaeology does not support that Nineveh was so big that it took three days to walk from one end to the other. Unless you kind of throw in all the suburban areas that might have been around that, that were out there, but even then you're talking about, you know, 50 to 60 miles across, something like that. That's a pretty big city. That was that big. So more than likely, it was kind of a city that was either, it took three days to walk around it, 
I believe it was more like it, talk, it took three days to kind of walk through it because it says he was going to walk through and preach. And it's not like he was going to get to the whole city if he just started walking into the city on one street and stood there and preaching. Uh, he was going to go through the whole city. And so I remember in Fez, there's actually a walled old city where there are no cars allowed in Fez, Morocco, that is only probably just a couple of square miles, three square miles or something like that. It is, a, it is an old city, but to walk from one end to the other took, you know, it might take a couple of hours just to walk from one end to the other to that just because the streets are narrow, there's crowds, you're not just going to blaze through it. But to get through the city, the whole city, you had to go down some narrow streets. And sometimes you went down some places you had no idea how you, go, you were going to get back. If you were going to try to talk to everybody, if you were going to try to put yourself in a position so that everybody would hear this message. And so here we see that Jonah, he is walking through the city all around trying to get there. And it says there in verse 4, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his message to Nineveh. In 40 days, y'all going to get blowed up. In 40 days, there's going to be a mushroom cloud over Nineveh. In 40 days, it says here, he uses the word, will be overthrown. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 18 and 19, where they, God is talking to Abraham, and they're, looking, and, they're, and they're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the same word that is used there, that is used here when he's walking through the streets crying out, in 40 days... Nineveh will be overthrown. So it's not just there's going to be somebody coming in and taking over. It's not just somebody's going to come. The idea here is that you are going to be destroyed. You are going to be leveled. Overthrown was just not you're going to be misplaced. You're going to be sent away someplace. It was, it was an incredibly, it, it wasn't the most positive message you would think that a, 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 a preacher or a missionary would go through a town. Not once did I ever tell someone my first words to them was, you know what? God's going to blow you up. That never was my first message to anyone. Typically, we try to come, come at people with, you know, God loves you. God loves the world and all that. But here, his message, and it says that this is what God wanted him to say. It's not that Jonah went through there doing this. This is, it says in, in, there in verse 2, I'm going to let, you're going to proclaim what I tell you to proclaim. You're going to tell them what I tell you to tell them. And as he went through, it says, in 40 days, you will be overthrown. And he only went through about a third of his trip because it says he entered, the, he, he went on one day's journey into the city. And immediately, what we see is not only did Jonah go through there and start preaching the message, but immediately, people started responding to this message. Look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. It began with the people of Nineveh. They began to respond to this message. They, they, now, and let me, I'm just going to stop right here because there's some people who will say that the story of Nona kind of got to Nineveh before he got there. That everybody started hearing about Jonah was coming in. And, and there is a chance that that happened, maybe. I don't see how because the idea here is that Jonah, surely when he made his vow, he didn't like spend a week or two in his, in, there in his hometown getting himself ready for the trip. I imagine he, st he, he got right up, cleaned himself off, and hit the road and went to Nineveh. 
And so the message can only go as fast as those who were taking the message. And it's not like they had the internet back there. So I doubt very seriously that the, the story of Jonah, we don't have any indication in scripture about this. And so we can't count on the fact that they, as they went through, as he was going through, that the story of Jonah got there before he did. And some people will say that he was kind of pale because of the gastric juices in the, way, in the fish's stomach that kind of paled his skin and all that. The Bible doesn't say that either. So Jonah here, he starts going through the city. He's crying out against it, telling them they're going to be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. They began wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth was just this cheap little, it was like a burlap sack type thing almost. It was not the most comfortable thing that they would wear or anything, but it was a sign of humility. It was a sign of you know, just uh, of, of repentance. It was a sign of, uh, I, 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 am, I, am, I am terrible in the sight of whether it was a Lord, a king, a God, or whatever. They would put sackcloth on to kind of show the humility they had as they went before them. And it says here that they just began, they, they, they called a fast and put sackcloth on from the greatest to the least of them. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat on ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no man, beast, herd, flock, or, or flock, shall taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands, from the violence which is in the hands of God. First, the people are starting to respond to this, and now all of a sudden you've got the king. The word gets to the king. It doesn't necessarily here say that he actually heard from Jonah. He started hearing from the people around him what was going on, and he realized that these people are responding to what God is wanting to do in Nineveh. Listen, this wasn't just a guy going through and saying, hey, y'all, y'all need to, y'all need to, everybody in here needs to start wearing a ball cap or we're going to be blowed up or we're going to be destroyed. It's not like we would all just go out and buy a ball cap all of a sudden and start wearing it unless there was something compelling that happened in the conversation or in our heart. I have no doubt that they had, uh, Assyria and Nineveh had heard stories about the God of Israel and what God of Israel could do and all that. But they weren't very much afraid of the God of Israel throughout when they were enemies of, of, the, of Israel and enemies of the God of Israel. They would call upon their gods as they would go against them. And actually, God is going to use, use Assyria later on to kind of take over, destroy Israel. But there's something going on here, something going on with the Ninevites and the only thing that can explain it is what we have seen throughout history, and that was that God was at work in the hearts of Nineveh. And that's the only way you can explain this, is that, that, that God, who was calling out that he was going to overthrow, was at work, and he was giving them a chance to respond. Listen, just like Jonah had a chance to respond. Remember, Jonah got up and he left, got on a ship, went out to sea. He was running from God. It actually says he was wanting to get away from the presence of God. And as he is moving in that direction, God stirs up a storm. That was the judgment. God was stirring up the storm. And that storm was getting increasingly worse 
to the point where I would be willing to bet that if Jonah had not just said, you know what, throw me overboard, we can't, we're not going to defeat this. And if those, oh, those sailors who had earlier been praying to their God did not turn around and believe in the God that was causing the storm, once they overthrew them, the storm calmed and they were even more afraid. They began offering vows to God, turning their attention to God. God, in, that, in the midst of that judgment that he was putting on the, on the seas at that time where Jonah was running away from the presence of God and the call of God in his life, at that time... Jonah had a second chance. And it took a lot for God to get Jonah's attention. And he could have easily just destroyed Jonah and went on to another person to see if they would go to Nineveh to do this. But in that moment, God gave Jonah a second chance to turn away from what he thought was best to do, to turn away from his desires, what he wanted to do as far as running from God, not wanting to have anything to do with Nineveh, and turning towards Nineveh. God did a work in Jonah's heart through the, 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 the wrath, the, the storm, through the fish, the, the darkness and the warmth and the wetness and the humidity and the crampness of the, being inside that fish. God used whatever he needed to do to get Jonah's attention. And once Jonah's attention turned towards God, God was, alive. God, God was there for him to receive what God had for him. The grace and mercy to continue to walk with God in obedience and, and his call to go to Nineveh. In the same way, God is here at work in the Ninevites. He says that he is, he, he is crying out. He sent Jonah there, and he's hollering at them and preaching to them and, and calling out to them, saying, in 40 days you will be overthrown. The sackcloth and fasting, like I said, was something that was done historically. We, we see that in Genesis 37, jo Jacob, when he heard the news that Joseph was possibly dead and, 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 and eaten up by a beast, he put on sackcloth and fasted. We, we see in Job, the, the book of Job, as he's going through multiple times throughout Job, we see him wearing sackcloth and fasting, sitting in ashes. We, we see David as he is out in, a, in 1 Chronicles 21. David, as he disobeys God, he and the his leaders around him, they put on sackcloth and fasted and turned their attention toward God. We see Ahab, the king of Ahab, when, when the, he was told that, you, that, that there is, you know, God is not happy with you, that he put on sackcloth. And we see Daniel, when Daniel knows they're getting towards the end of the 70 years, and, and Daniel, he puts on sackcloth and all that, and he turns his attention, humbly turns his attention to God, and he's trying to seek out, okay, God, what's the next thing that's going to happen here? We know that our time in captivity is possibly coming to an end. What's next? He, he humbly sits before God in sackcloth. And we see that throughout the Old Testament many times where this is put on to represent a humility of coming before God. I don't have the answers. I don't know what's going to happen. I know that I have not done exactly maybe what you've wanted me to do or God, I just need you to speak into my life. In such desperation where they just put on sackcloth and they sit in ashes and they fast. And in Nineveh, it says, not only did the, did the king cry out and say, all you people, but he said, don't even let the animals get something to eat. Don't even let the animals get something to drink. 
He wasn't. The king here was not going to cut any corners. The king here was not going to allow any shortcuts to happen. He was going to do whatever he could to see. Because it says right here in verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. God may he may. He, there was no certainty here. I want us to see that. The king here was not doing this and expecting God to follow his direction. Okay, God, we're doing this. Now it's up to you. you know, your play next is to kind of not do what you said you were going to do. He was not. He was saying, and maybe, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. At the time, he had no certainty. But, man, this is, this is what I love about the work of Jesus Christ and, and what he has done on the cross. And when he came and lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. We have certainty now. We have a certainty now. We don't have to kind of wonder or second guess. The Scripture tells us in Romans 8, 1, that for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. For those in Christ Jesus. Friends, we, we do not have to live like this king or like the Ninevites do, knowing that there is a wrath of God on the horizon, knowing that it is out there somewhere. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but we know it's out there on the horizon. But for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is, that is no threat to us. We have a certainty of our hope in standing before God. Only, not because of how we live our lives or the things that we've done or the things that we will do or our standing or anything like that. Not because of any of that. It is because of Christ Jesus. When he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That is our ticket. That is the way that we are allowed to stand rightly before God, not because of what we've done. The only thing that we have done is to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is all we can do, to humbly go before the Father in the presence of Christ, to know that we have nothing to bring to the table, to know that we have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. That is the sackcloth that we need to be putting on. That is the sackcloth that, sackcloth that we need to be wearing is that we have nothing to bring to the table except what Christ has done for us and us submitting to Christ himself. That's it. Here, though, they have no idea. Who knows? May God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger that we will not perish. We see here that Jonah, he is sent. We see that in those passages that Nineveh repents, and here we see that eventually God relents in verse 10. Look at what it says there. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God relented. When he saw that 
not only the people and the king and, and all that was going on around him, he, when he saw that this was going on, that they were humbly putting themselves before God, crying out to God. And let me just say this, is, is it, when it says here that they, he, he, he called them to cry out to God, it wasn't he's just crying out to any of your gods, cry out to all the gods that we have on, you know, in your house or out in the streets or in the temples or anything like that. He wasn't telling them to do that. He uses the word, he uses the word here, cry out to Elohim. Cry out. It's the Elohim, if you just look back in Genesis, the first chapter in Genesis, man, it's used like 30 times referring to God. He says, you know, everybody here, everybody in Nineveh, cry out to God. And it says that when God saw that, when he saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning them. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, it says that at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring to it. Jeremiah here is talking, just a, he's just sharing that there is a judgment that God has. And if he has a judgment against like Nineveh, and they turn from their wicked ways and, and, and turn their attention back to God and, 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 and run from their wickedness. He will relent from punishing that country. And this, he gives the same promise to us that we, there, is, there, is a, there is a judgment waiting out there for us. But if you turn from your wicked ways, if you walk, walk away from your life and you come and... and, and, and Submit to the things that I want you to submit to, the, that you believe in what I have done for your righteousness, for your hope, for your peace, for your joy. If you believe in me, then that out there is not going to touch you. That out there, that judgment that is waiting is not there. For those of us in Christ, that should be a source of peace. That should be just a source of hope, a certainty. And it should compel us to want to share that with others as well. But listen, there might be some in here, there might be one, two, or there might be some that, at, 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 that you would say that you are not necessarily a follower of Jesus Christ. You, you believe in God, and, and I'll, listen, for my, in my life I believed in God for a long, long time. But it wasn't until I was 22 years old that I kind of was told and figured out and came to a better understanding of what that meant. It's not just about head knowledge of whether you believe in God or not. Because one of the things I learned early on was the devil believes in God. How am I different from the devil? And that's what got my attention. And I start, as, as I started, guys were praying with me, guys were sharing with me, and I realized that I was trying to figure out how I could please God. I was trying to figure out how I could earn favor from God. I was trying to figure out how I can be better person so that God couldn't say, well, you know, you're a pretty good person. Yeah, I'll let you in. Where is that line? Well, that line is not about what we do or who we are or what we have or anything like that. That line is the person of Jesus Christ alone. That line is the work that he did on this, on this. When he came and he lived the perfect life all those years, 
there and, 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 and he died on the cross in our place. He took our place in the death of sin in our lives. He, he took our place in that death. And not only that, he, God raised him from the dead. He conquered not only sin, but death. And the scriptures tell us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And what that means is, as we confess that Jesus is Lord, is not that I will listen to him and, and, and obey him as long as I'm comfortable with it. No, when he is Lord, when he is the master of our life, we totally submit to him. We totally surrender to him. We don't get to bring our preferences in the matter. Jonah found that out real quick when he said, hey, I need for you to pack up, go, and go do this. And Jonah went in the opposite direction. Believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you shall be saved. There is no reason why a person should leave this place this morning without that certainty of hope in their life, knowing that they do not have to live in fear of the coming judgment that will come at some point. We don't know the time or the day. We don't know, if it's the, we don't know what hour. We don't know what week, month, year. We don't know when it's going to happen. It might happen in our lifetime. It might not happen in our lifetime. But it will happen at some point. And the only way away from that is through Jesus Christ himself. The Father, listen, the Father says, or Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He doesn't wish for any of us. He doesn't even wish for any of us to live in fear of that for those of us who are in Christ. I, I don't know how many times I've met with people who were in Christ that still had doubts, that still kind of wondered. They were still trying to please God with their life and not realizing, listen, friends, we're going to mess up. We are fl human flesh. We are going to mess up. We're going to have thoughts we shouldn't have. We're going to say things we shouldn't say. We're going to do some things we shouldn't do. But we read a verse earlier up here in 1 John that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us completely. So here Jonah, as he goes through this town, he's crying out against it. They are repenting. The king puts out a declaration for everyone, even the animals, to put on sackcloth and repent. And then God relents. God keeps from putting a mushroom cloud over Nineveh. And just for a little taste of next week, the very first verse in chapter 4 says, And it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Jonah's got some serious problems. Jonah's tried to run from God. Jonah's tried to hide from God. Jonah has tried to disobey God. God has got his attention. He's trying to bring him back. Jonah is checking off the boxes. He's following the, the direction of God and all that. But here it says that this displeased him. Friends, what I have discovered when I have come back to America is that there are places, there are Christians, I mean, we're talking about deacons and churches and even some pastors that I have talked to that have this similar heart toward people in the nations around the world. And it 
causes me to be angry at the fact that these men of God say that these people do not deserve God because of a handful of people are stirring up trouble around the world. And if we bring it a little bit closer home, because let me just say, this was me, I can kind of see this in my life, just a small part, even just yesterday. We were, came to the church, there were several of us who were here, we went over some things, and we began prayer walking through our neighborhood, and Shannon and uh, Catherine and I, we're walking down Illinois Avenue and we, and on separate sides of the street. And over across the street, I see there's, this, there's, there's three people out front in their house crushing big beer cans. And I'm thinking, man, they are hungover. They're not going to understand a thing we say. I mean, they had a lot of beer cans, bags of them, and they were crushing them and, and all that. And I thought, I, I'm not even going to waste my time. Shannon across the street, she's going. And I'm going, you know, hand signals and all that. And she's going, I said, all right, if you want to go. We went over there and we had a, just went over there and asked them how we can pray for them. And, man, they jumped right up. And they asked us to, they started telling us some things. And they took our hands and we stood in a circle and we prayed for a while with them. Now, that's as far as it went. But in the midst of that, God showed me that I was not willing to cross the street for a bunch of drunks that I thought they were not going to understand anything that we were trying to do. And I even went against what I was telling the team that was here when I was saying, we're not out here to see if we can change the world right now. We're not out here just to get to the gospel. We want to get out here just to love people and to pray for them. That's all we want to do today is we want to love on people and pray for them. We're not concerned about anything else. Our, our priority this morning is to love people and pray for them. And I, had, didn't, and I, I, was, not, I was not there. I let that moment, I let that moment show me that David Hutton, you have not arrived You are so much like Jonah in a lot of ways. And I would just kind of throw that out there with all of us, is in what ways are we like Jonah? In what ways do we not cross the street? In what ways do we not show love to people around us? In what ways are we not like Christ? I don't know anything. This is between you and God. I just kind of laid myself open there and shared with you that... uh, what happened in my life yesterday? God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's bow our heads and ponder on that. Let's let God speak to us in that. Let God kind of sh- show us in our own lives areas that we need to be honest and transparent and truthful with ourselves and allowing God to work in our lives in such a way that we can continue to pursue Christ's likeness as he does. Father God, I I thank you for 
opportunities that you give us to see your hand at work. And even when it is not as pleasant as we would hope sometimes, we can still see your hand at work correcting us. Father, I pray you would shine your light in those dark corners of our heart that show what we are hiding or what we are avoiding or, or just what we don't know about. Father, I pray that we would continually be pliable in your hands, that you would continually mold us into what you would have us to be, that we would not bring our agendas to the table and our desires and our wants, that we would not try to remove ourselves from your presence. Father, for those of us in Christ, help us to walk in confidence and certainty of that there is no condemnation in our lives. That doesn't mean you're not finished with us. You're still working on us. That does not mean we have arrived or we have far to go. And the closer we get to you, the further we see that we real, truly are. Father, for those who may not have put their trust in you, my prayer, Father, is that they would not leave this place this morning before having a conversation with me or someone else and settle that matter in their own heart. We are grateful, Father, for your love to us. I pray, dear God, that our lives would honor you in everything that we think and say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.